Lord, I thank you for the specific things that were put in this passage for us to learn from today. And I pray you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and have a better understanding of you and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so there was a, a monk who joined a monastery, and every 10 years you were only allowed to say two words. <laughs> and so after the first 10 years went by, he had his first chance to speak, and he said two words, food, bad. <clears throat> Another 10 years went by, and he said, bed, hard. And then a third decade later, he gives the head monk a long stare and says, I quit. <laughs> and the head monk said, well, I'm not surprised you've been doing nothing but complain since you got here. <laughs> so, I love that. All right. Well, in our study so far of this gospel, we have seen Jesus dealing with individual people. He spoke at length to a Pharisee and to a non-seeking Samaritan woman. He healed a nobleman's son. And these were small groups of people who witnessed his miracles. Even at the wedding of Canaan of Galilee, when he turned the water into wine, it was the servants who knew about it and Mary's who instructed those different ones to be aware and do what Jesus said. But as we begin our chapter today, we're introduced to an important theme, which will be seen throughout the rest of this gospel. It is because of the miracle that Jesus does today that adamant opposition is aroused among the religious leaders. And this is a conflict, as you know, that is just going to grow and intensify, culminating at the murder of Jesus. We will see the opposition Jesus faces in Judea here in chapter 5 because he heals a man on the Sabbath. And <clears throat> many initial followers of Jesus, we'll see next week, will abandon him. And by the time we get to chapter 7, the hardened hearts of the religious authorities are all planning to arrest him at any cost without success at this point. So the kindness and mercy of Jesus is actually going to bring about persecution from the religious leaders who seem to care nothing that this man, you know, got better, uh, but only that he was carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. So this is the third sign in the Gospel of John. Remember, Everything he picked was to convince us to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. So we read in verse 1, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, and lame, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water, whoever then first, after sitting up, uh, stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And that three and four, as you know, is in quotes. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, and he said to him, do you wish to get well? The man said to, answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately, the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that, it was the Sabbath on that day. So we aren't told the time lapse exactly of when Jesus left Galilee 
and went up to Jerusalem to observe a specific feast. But John explains to his readers the particular location of the pool of water in the northeast corner of the city wall, not far from the temple. Bethesda literally means house of mercy or house of outpourings. So these people were gathered under the protection of the porticos to cover them from the elements. And there was a large number of people there with all manner of disability and illness. And the thought in the words that are used here is describe them as they were without strength to help themselves. So this particular pool was rediscovered in 1888 when connection to the repairs of the Church of St. Anne, which is an amazing church. Everyone who goes to Jerusalem goes in this church to sing because the acoustics, remember, <laughs> are phenomenal. And it was while work was being done there that they discovered the pool, and it's a great sight to see. As I'm sure you discovered at the end of verse 3 and 4, they're not in the earliest, most reliable texts and manuscripts. It was likely added by a scribe in an attempt to explain what the paralytic man was talking about in verse 7 when the water stirred. Our focus then needs not to be on the real source uh, of, of this pool or activity going on in the pool, but rather the power of Jesus and his love for this man to make him well. Of the many hurting hearts and bodies gathered by this pool was this man who was ill for 38 years. So we aren't told when he got ill, exactly how, but he had been there almost four decades of his life. Jesus, or he'd been ill that long. So Jesus saw him and knew because he's omniscient that this man had been in this condition all of this very long time. Jesus asked him, do you wish to get well? Certainly seems like an odd question to ask because clearly he desired to get well. Who wouldn't want to be well? And this is the reason he's lying near the pool of water with hopes. His hope is in this pool of water that one day he could be healed by it. By asking the man this question, Jesus instantly now has his full attention. This conversation was purposely about this man's great need and Jesus was showing him love and concern. This man had no idea Jesus could heal him. His only hope was in the healing powers of a pool of water. He believed that these waters were moved by some source and that the first person to reach that pool when it was stirred would be then healed. Never dawned on him that the man talking to him could heal him. His only focus was finding a way to be the first one to get into the pool when it stirred. Perhaps he thought Jesus was going to hang around with him, you know, and carry him over there. The furthest thing from this man's mind is any thought that Jesus could or would heal him. This was a man who had experienced a lifetime of disappointment for any opportunity to be healed by these waters. No one there likely thought about anybody but themselves, right? This is a <laughs> free-for-all as they all stare at the water. I don't know what the blind people, how they knew the water stirred. I had to have somebody, but rushing to get there to be there first. Well, it's not hard to understand how this man would have lost all hope after years of failing to make it to the water first. Jesus looked into the face of this man and commanded him, get up, take up your pallet, and walk. And instantly, he could stand, carry his mat he's been laying on, and walk away. This was no different than the power of Jesus who spoke the worlds into existence that now he creates new body parts in a moment for this man. Having firsthand experience with the disability of this kind with our granddaughter, this miracle is especially stunning. When bones and muscles are not developed because they have not walked, nothing works properly. Everything 
takes time and improvement and therapy for any hope to walk. So for this man to instantly have strong feet, strong ankle bones, ligaments, and muscles to jump up after 38 years of laying is stunning. His healing was immediate, even though this man had no faith to even believe Jesus would heal him. What a contrast to the so-called faith healers today who lie and cruelly put the blame on the sick, saying that you're ill because you don't have the faith to be well. Out of all the sick people laying there that day, God chose this man to heal. He hadn't sought Jesus out. Jesus approached him. What a clear example of the sovereignty of God and his grace. I can't imagine the joy of this man and the awe of everybody else around who witnessed this miracle, but this joy-filled moment quickly comes to an end because we see in verse 10, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Well, most of you know of the endless hundreds of rabbinical traditions uh, that were written that made breaking the Sabbath uh, something everybody was guilty of. They went far beyond any Old Testament prohibitions. So, and so they persecuted Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, but it was not biblically based. When these religious leaders saw this man healed of his affliction, they didn't care anything for the fact that he was well and walking now. Rather, all they cared about that he was carrying his pallet, and that's work. The man tried to get out of it. And, uh, he was in trouble with the religious leaders of his community, so they were attacking him for carrying his pallet, so he just said, well, I'm just doing what the one who healed me told me to do. These men had put their standards and their rules of right and wrong on the same level of inspired scripture. Jesus had slipped away as the crowd had gathered after he healed this man. Later, though, Jesus found him in the temple and warned him not to sin anymore so nothing worse would happen to him. Well, clearly we understand that scripture does speak that illness comes because we're in a fallen world with fallen bodies and that's inevitable. We're all going to die. We're all going to get sick and struggle with sickness, but there are times when sickness is the direct discipline of God in our lives and him trying to get our attention. David in Psalm 38 says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Moses also warned about plagues and diseases which would come upon the people if they failed to honor the Lord. Deuteronomy 28. So it seems here that the Lord is warning this man not to go back to a specific sin, a worse fate than 38 years of being unable to walk would be eternal punishment in hell. You would think this man at this moment would fall down on his knees and worship Jesus and say, let me be one of your followers. I want to stay with you. I want to hear everything you have to say. 
But instead, he leaves immediately and goes, as it were, tells on Jesus, tells the leaders he knows now the identity of that person who told him to break the Sabbath. His loyalty seems to be towards these religious leaders instead of Jesus. Defending himself for breaking the Sabbath seems more important to him than worship of the one who actually healed him. Jesus then meets with this continual persecution because of the kindness he does to individuals on the Sabbath. Jesus makes it clear that he was in perfect conformity to the will of the Father, who was even at this moment working by preserving people and providing redemption through his Son. It is for this reason the religious leaders are going to try to kill Jesus. In their minds, he's a Sabbath breaker. And then Jesus makes himself to be equal to God. We read in verse 19 and 20 about this situation. The religious leaders were so angry about him breaking the Sabbath, but their anger intensified greatly because Jesus called God his own father, making himself equal with God. With very strong words, Jesus tells his hearers, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. So everything Jesus did was in perfect harmony and submission to the will of the father. Jesus made it very clear to them that he claimed to be equal to God because, you know, he was God. Jesus tells them that the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Interesting here, the word used for love, the Father loves the Son, is not agape love. It's phileo, a term used only here in the New Testament to refer to the Father and his love for the Son because it has feelings of deep affection like a father, earthly father would have for his own son. We see then that Jesus has the same power as the Father in verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Clearly throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is only God who has the power to raise the dead. Jesus the Son gives resurrection life to whoever he wants to. And the Father and Son are in perfect agreement. This giving of life included eternal life and a resurrected body. And then we see Jesus has equal power to judge in verse 22. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Again, we see clearly Jesus claims to be God, that all judgment has been given to him as the father has given it to him. There is a fixed day of judgment coming to this world. Every person who has ever lived will stand before Jesus and those who have rejected him will hear Those awful words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus goes on to claim that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not know the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Jesus is equal to God the Father in every way. This is no small claim that Jesus is boldly making. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus gives a promise to all of those who believe in him that they have passed out of death and into life. And with these claims, there can be no question of Jesus declaring that he is God. Every person has to make a decision for themselves, whether they are with him or against him. It's not a half-hearted, casual decision. 
His rightful place is being the Lord over your life. Is he? Well, then Jesus go on, goes on to talk about two resurrections. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, and he gave his authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Through all of human history, people have wondered, is this all there is? Is this life it? Hollywood loves to make movies with great imaginations about people who have died, what they're doing, and how they interact coming back to their loved ones here on the earth. But the Bible makes it very clear that all people will one day be raised from the dead, and every single person will live forever as individuals who are conscious. For those who believe and put their trust in Jesus, there are two aspects to that resurrection. There has been a spiritual resurrection and then a physical to happen later. At the moment of our spiritual birth, a believer is resurrected from their spiritually dead souls and enjoy new life in Jesus. Physically, we know our bodies eventually die. And they will one day be resurrected and live forever united with our spirit. But there is also the resurrection of the unbeliever. Because they have never experienced that spiritual resurrection, they will be raised to face their final sentence at the great white throne judgment. Their resurrection bodies will be equipped to endure eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That is very hard to wrap your head around. Their resurrection bodies will be equipped to endure eternal punishment in the lake of fire. What a sobering thought. One that really ought to embolden us to share the gospel. Jesus makes the declaration that an hour is coming and now is, in the sense that when we are dead in trespasses and sins, God then makes us alive together with Christ and raises us up, as Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 state. Yet the physical resurrection is yet in the future. Unbelievers are described in the New Testament as spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And Jesus makes it clear that he came to give eternal life to the spiritually dead, as we see throughout our study. Verse 26 repeats the thought of verse 21, that the Son can give life because he has life in himself, and the Father has given the authority to him to give life. Those who hear meaning those who respond to the gospel by repenting of their sins and believing in him will live. Jesus will say in chapter 10 that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Verses 27 through 9 give further explanation about the physical resurrection to come, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus is God in human flesh. Therefore, he is uniquely qualified to be the judge of all mankind. Clearly, Jesus is not saying that salvation and being right with God is achieved by doing good deeds. Rather, those who are truly born again into God's family, they live a different kind of life. They honor the Lord. They obey his word. They walk in the light of what scripture says. 
They are saved by the Lamb of God. They've trusted him to take away their sin. In other words, their life reflects what happened when their heart was changed, the moment they trusted Jesus. Deeds reveal the condition of a person's heart. Good deeds reveal whether salvation is absent or present, but good deeds could never produce salvation. Rather, they are the result of a changed heart. Jesus goes on to say that an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. At a time in the future, the souls of the righteous dead, who are in, souls, uh, he- who are in heaven already, and the souls of the unrighteous dead, now suffering in Hades, according to Luke 16, will be given new resurrected bodies they'll have for all of eternity. We know from 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that those who belong to Christ will be raised up at the rapture and their new resurrected bodies will be joined with their soul. And Old Testament believers will be saved during the, uh, will be, <clears throat> and those who will be saved during the tribulation will also be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. I always wondered about the people who go into the thousand year millennial reign of Christ because they're people who are going to have children. So when is that going to work? Well, it's very possible they'll have resurrected bodies as soon as they die. Well, that leads us to the deed of Jesus Christ seen by the witnesses. And John just kind of closes out this chapter with giving more, uh, reviewing the witnesses that we have that Jesus is God. The first was John the Baptist, who claimed Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then we have the witness of the works that Jesus did. Even Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus pointed to the many miracles as a confirmation of his claim that he is the Messiah. Then there's the witness of the Father. It's true the voice of the Father was heard as baptism and transfiguration. But it would seem that the context is speaking about the voice of the Father's testimony throughout Old Testament scriptures. The hostility of the Jewish religious leaders caused them to fail to see Jesus, the voice as well as, uh, as, as the very form of God. Jesus said, you, excuse me, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. The one sent by the Father as Messiah, they refuse to recognize or to acknowledge. And then there's the witness of scripture. They claim to be, the religious leaders were so proud of their knowledge of the Torah and their study of the Old Testament. And they completely failed to grasp that it is those scriptures that gave the testimony about Jesus. They had a system of self-righteous religious works and legalistic rules, and that result was not having salvation. Self-righteousness has never been able to save anyone. There is no human effort, because Jesus, throughout Scripture, makes that clear, and as we know, Isaiah says, all our uh, deeds are filthy rags in God's sight. But they refused to humble themselves. They refused to recognize how wickedly sinful they were as John the Baptist had called them to do in his preaching. Jesus could never be glorified as their Lord and Messiah because they were the ones seeking all the glory themselves. Jesus then calls upon Moses, the one that they put all of their hopes in, because Moses will one day accuse them before God. If they had truly believed Moses, like they claimed they did, then they would have believed Jesus. Moses wrote about Jesus, Deuteronomy 18, 15, and many other places. The whole Old Testament pointed to him. The whole sacrificial system was about him. And this can't help uh, think about the story here of the poor beggar, Lazarus, who died, you know, ate the crumbs left over from the rich man's at his gate. 
and the rich man is suffering in hell. And the rich man uh, wants Abraham to send word back to his brothers here on earth. I beg you, Father Abraham, that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. It's another sobering thought, thinking of this man in the torment of hell, totally conscious of his life here on earth, totally conscious of his loved ones whom he missed, and evangelistic in his thought, actually. You know, send someone to warn them so they don't come where I am. The persecution of Jesus has begun today as we've looked at this chapter, and it will only be satisfied by the religious leaders at his death. And yet the testimony of John the Baptist, the miracles that Jesus performed, the Father's uh, word, the scripture, all prove Jesus is God. So when you think about how any of this applies to us, you need to be reminded Jesus is the God who can do the impossible. And we dare not be ungrateful like the man appears to be that Jesus healed. Think of all that Jesus has done for you, far beyond a physical healing of limbs. If you know him, he gave his life to give you eternal life. And we are to desire to honor him and please him and not have other people's opinions about us be more important than Jesus' opinion about us. Think of all he did for you. And with this man, I mean, healed of his his physical disease and illness, his first thought was to go to these other men and, you know, try to get out of looking bad in their eyes. We may be amazed at these religious leaders and all of the evidence they had right before them that they would not believe Jesus is God, and yet they would not. They failed to see the truth of his word, and we're here studying his word. We're here to learn how to live and emulate the life of Jesus as he wants us as his children to live. He has given us promises in his word so that we can survive and live here without a life consumed with fear and worry and anxiety. All of the evidence for who he is and what he has promised to do for us is right here in his word. We have to live as if we really believe this, (laughs) that it's not just verses, yeah, I know about. But this is the reality of the place we have to live in. So what is your response to his word? What is your response to the authority of Jesus in your life and being Lord over your life? I pray that you're one who has gratitude and that you're one who lives your life based on his truth and really believe it and not be a practical atheist in your Christian walk. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this chapter you've included in your word. Lord, sometimes we get so consumed with wanting physical health and healing, certainly as this man wanted, but how much greater is our spiritual sickness? I pray if there's any lady here who, Lord, doesn't know you, hasn't realized her sinful, sick, spiritual state before you, that you will open her eyes to understand that and to grasp that and to come running to you with humility, repenting of sin and trusting you 
I thank you you would go through all you went through in coming here to earth in order to purchase us with your blood. Lord, I pray that we would live lives today that reflect incredible gratitude for your kindness and mercy shown to us. Lord, I pray that what you think of us will be most important, that we will not be oppressed and consumed with what others think about us, but how you think about us. Help us to walk, Lord, really lives who believe that we would be women who believe your word and live lives that make that evident by the way we talk, by the way we think and behave. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.